Good morning. Happy Lord's Day. Let's uh, let's spend a moment going to the Lord in prayer. And uh, doesn't it, it takes it takes some effort, doesn't it, to leave the world behind and to get our minds and hearts here? So that's part of the reason for this hour. So let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Our Father, what a glorious day it is to worship our Savior Jesus Christ. And we are taught by Christ Himself that we are to worship in spirit and in truth. And so we thank you, Lord, for giving us a the Spirit of God giving us the Spirit of worship which must be and is based on truth and truth alone is revealed in Scripture alone. And so we thank you for this day. We ask you, Lord, to begin to shape our affections and our focus solely onto you. This world is filled with distractions and difficulties and pains and trials. And so to come together and look heavenward is our mandate and is our duty today. I pray, Lord, that you would be pleased with our efforts to worship you today and that we would be edified and lifted up, strengthened in our faith. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Turn to Psalm 3. We're going to begin just simply by reading the psalm together and then we'll go kind of a chunk by chunk through it. Psalm 3, and just a reminder... In your Bibles, the little superscription, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son, those are inspired. Those are part of the original text. Um, In the Hebrew Bible, that would be verse 1. So it's really confusing when you're comparing the two, but you just have to uh, add one to all the verses. So it is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Yahweh, how my adversaries have become many. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was calling to Yahweh with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain. Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke for Yahweh sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who all around have set themselves against me. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. So we're just getting moving our way into the Psalms now. Psalm 1 was the characteristics of the godly and the wicked. And in Psalm 2 focused really on the wicked, the unmasking of the wicked. And you remember from last time, you know, we saw that all the pretensions of religiosity are just stripped away and their, their anger and their hatred for God is made open. Well, if Psalm 2 focuses on the unmasking of the wicked, Psalm 3 focuses on those who are, who are the godly, who are saved. So Psalm 1, you have both. Psalm 2 focuses on the wicked. Psalm 3 focuses on the godly, those who are in the camp of the righteous and What Psalm 3 is going to show us is the full access you have to all the benefits of being a child of God. And so it's a delightful psalm for us. But you saw in the superscription, the psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. I I want to delve a lot more deeply into that situation because that didn't happen in a vacuum. So I want to take a few minutes and actually show you what was happening right up to the actual morning that David wrote Psalm 3. 
So we have to go back in time just a little bit. King David had gone off the rails for a period of time. He was a man after God's own heart. He was the chosen and anointed king of Israel. We understand that. We believe that. He was the one through whom the Messiah, Jesus, would come. But he became arrogant. In 2 Samuel 11, we read the record of David seeing a woman that he wanted, not his wife. This is Bathsheba. And he took her to himself and she became pregnant. And of course, the problem was that she was married to one of David's own mighty men and they were in a time of war. She wasn't just married to some soldier that was nameless. He's in the list, Uriah the Hittite, of the mighty men that David loved, cherished, and trusted. So this was a a major, major sin problem. And so David tried to get her husband Uriah to come home and be with Bathsheba to cover his own sin so that the, the child might be seen to be Uriah's. But Uriah was an honorable man. He refused the comforts of, of home and his wife while the battle was raging. And so David had him killed. Now, of course, none of this got by God. You're not going to pull sin over God's eyes. And David was visited by the prophet Nathan and he was confronted. David repented. He was truly anguished over his own sin. Psalm 51 is a record of his repentance. In 2 Samuel 12, beginning in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, Yahweh has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of Yahweh to blaspheme, the son also that is born to you shall surely die. And so that child died. Now David had other problems, probably the result of the neglect of his family. And being off track with that, David's adult children were in chaos. His family was out of control. And it's no wonder he had eight wives. He had 19 sons from those wives, plus other sons from concubines. Now, that wasn't uncommon in the ancient Near East for a king, but it wasn't God's plan whatsoever. David's oldest son, Amnon, by his wife Ahinoam, uh, Amnon loved his half-sister, Tamar. She was the daughter of David's wife, Maacah. And so this young woman, Tamar, was a virgin awaiting marriage, and Amnon violated her, forced himself on her, and she begged him to marry her so that she wouldn't be shamed, she wouldn't be humiliated, but now he hated her and he sent her away in humiliation. Well, Tamar had a brother, the third son of David, and his name was Absalom. And Absalom murdered Amnon for what Uh, Amnon had done to his sister. And just to be clear, this wasn't murder done in the heat of the moment, in a moment of anguish or in a rage. He waited two years. And then he murdered him after plotting and scheming revenge. And when that happened, all of David's sons panicked. They thought Absalom was going to try to take them all out. And in fact, the very first rumor that reached David was that Absalom had killed all of his other sons. And so Absalom ran away to escape the justice of his father David. David mourned for his oldest son Amnon, who would have been king after David, uh, according to tradition. And so Absalom stayed away for three years. But after a period of time, David's heart softened. In 2 Samuel 13, 39, the heart of King David was consumed with going out to Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon since he had died. In other words, there had been enough pain in the family. He just wanted his family to be together. 
But it wasn't going to be easy. And eventually David did bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. But he didn't allow Absalom back into his presence for two more years. Now, just a little side note about Absalom. We don't have any photographs, so we have descriptions. He was universally considered to be the most handsome man in all of Israel. Uh, Every year he cut his hair and he weighed it and it weighed five pounds. And that was a big public deal. He was handsome, he was popular, he was magnetic in personality. And after two years, finally, Amnon, or Absalom rather, came to the king. Second Samuel 14, 33, he came to the king and prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. And boy, that looked good. It looked like the family's all back together and everything is going to be fine. Forgiveness has been had. There is such a thing as false repentance. There is such a thing as a, as a person who learns to say the right words, but is still evil at heart. And Absalom was a schemer to the core. All this waiting to get back into the king's good graces was simply for his own purposes. What he had been doing is he, he began inserting himself into the affairs of the kingdom without David knowing it. He started helping those in distress. He started settling disputes in all the ways that David perhaps was not being the king he should be. Absalom was stepping in and David never knew it. And so 2 Samuel fifteen six says, so Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom did this for four years. He kept building a following, building a following until Absalom was essentially able to turn the most important men of Israel against David and to himself. And now there's the makings of a full-on coup and that's exactly what happened. Now Absalom takes over and King David and a a hastily compiled uh, entourage and a small army had to flee Jerusalem. They had to go into hiding in the wilderness while Absalom literally sat on the throne of Israel. Many of David's trusted friends and counselors all turned against him. They, they uh, put their finger into the wind of the turning political tides and thought they'd better go with the winner, and they thought that was going to be Absalom. David is obviously crushed. He's anguished as he escaped. Second Samuel 15.30 says, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went, and his head was covered, and he was walking barefoot. And all the people who were with him each covered his head and went weeping as they went. And then Absalom did two absolutely heinous things, arrogant things. First of all, David had left behind 10 official concubines in the palace and Absalom set up a tent on the roof and had his way with all 10 of them in public. This is the ultimate humiliation to a king in the ancient Near East and a humiliation to his father. And the second heinous thing he did was he mustered a massive army to hunt down his own dad. So Absalom is now closing in with with an army. David organized his own men. He had a substantial army of his own of several thousand. But they're hungry. They're tired. They didn't have time to plan for a battle. They're running for their lives. They're in hiding. And early in the morning in which those two forces would clash, David penned Psalm 3. It's a lament. It's It's a cry to God. It's an anguish, it's pain. But it's a hymn of sadness flavored very heavily with a picture of what trusting the Lord looks like. And this should engender in us such respect, such wonder that David was able to have this sort of faith. And this is why it's here. It is inspired by God. He's put to test in the severest of trials. 
Now, you notice that I read a word this morning, just a little side note. It's the first time this appears in the Psalms, and we noticed at the end of verse 2, 4, and 8, the word Selah. Um, There's a lot of disagreement as to what Selah means. Probably the best idea is that it's some sort of pause or maybe a musical term, and so we don't really translate it. Um, it's appropriate to read it because it is in the, in the inspired text. It's appropriate to skip it because we don't exactly know what it means. So either way is fine. I chose to read it this morning. And in a lot of cases, it actually provides the, uh, the breakdown or the structure of a psalm. And so as you're reading through the psalms, just notice those markers of Selah. There's a reason that the author said to pause there. But for our purposes this morning... I want to use Psalm 3 as what I might call God's lesson plan for growing your faith. God is the master teacher for strengthening your trust and your faith in Him. And and the lesson plan has a progression. We might call this the progression of faith in the midst of great distress. So here's the progression. I'm going to give it to you up front. We'll spend a little time on the first part, a little time on the last part, and a lot of time in the middle. So here's the progression. Strong faith begins in trouble, I'll repeat this, strong faith begins in trouble, progresses to trust, and concludes in triumph. Strong faith begins in trouble, progresses to trust, and concludes in triumph. So there's the, there's the progression, trouble, trust, and triumph. Now, obviously, the big one is in the middle, and that's where we'll spend most of our time. But first, the master teacher explains that strong faith begins in trouble. That trouble is coming. It's for your own good. It's for God's glory. It's for your strengthening. And if I could put it this way, there is no strengthening your faith without pain. You cannot read in a book solely how to be strong in the Lord, how to trust the Lord. You must have circumstances in which to live that out. You can read a library on what it means to trust the Lord But without trials, you'll never try it out. You'll never test it. So we see the trouble in verses 1 and 2. O Yahweh, how my adversaries have become many. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. He, He cries out, how many are my adversaries? I want you to try to put yourself in David's shoes. How shocking is this that literally days before writing Psalm 3, He's in the heyday of his life as the king of Israel. He is seated on the throne of what is the most powerful nation in the, in the ancient Near East at that time. And all of a sudden, he's running for his life. He's surrounded by an army which would come after him. And look at the, the hopelessness that he speaks of here. How do we know there's hopelessness? What word is repeated in here? How my adversaries have become many Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. What's happening to David? He's recording an attack on his faith. All he can see at the beginning of this trouble is the fact that everyone is against him. The focus is on the many, the many, the many. He feels surrounded, and in this case, he literally is surrounded. He's having his faith attacked. And this is something you can expect. When the trial hits you, expect that stomach-punching, gut-wrenching feeling of wondering whether God is going to help you. There's an immediate attack on your faith, that you're in trouble at some level you've never experienced before. You can sense your trust in the Lord wavering. Your your faith becomes like a candle, and the, the wind is blowing hard, and you're just watching that flame, hoping it stays lit. 
Sadly, David is experiencing the rejection of many who had previously stood with him. Now, why is this the case? This happens today in the church all the time. David's life is suddenly in turmoil. So the theological conclusion that people come to is, well, if God is not blessing your life, then you must be out of favor with God. That because you have trouble happening, God must have rejected you and your faith must be false. You know, my faith, I trust the Lord. My life's going just fine. Your faith must be false because your life is not going well. What is this? This is the classic lie of judging faith by circumstances, of judging God's favor by how your life is going. And in our circles even, it's sad to see the definition of salvation sometimes reduced to the idea of my life is so much better, my marriage is better, my finances are better, therefore I must be a Christian. Let me read you the testimony of a woman about how God's favor was blessing her marriage. See what you think. She says, quote, When you're married, you and your spouse have the chance to participate in the work of salvation together. Ben, that's her husband, and I have found great joy in building a Christ-centered home, studying and living the gospel together, serving in the church, and inviting others to come to Christ. As we work together to build the kingdom of God, we grow closer and our love deepens and our life is more fulfilling. That sounds like the life of someone that God is blessing, doesn't it? She's a Mormon. There are philosophies, there are false religions that can externally change some aspects of your life. That does not mean you're a genuine follower of God. We don't judge genuine faith by circumstances or by results. We judge genuine faith by whether you're following the Savior or not, whether you're in the truth or not, whether you believe the doctrines of grace or not. It's one thing to go through a terrible trial, but as David experienced, and maybe some of you have experienced as well, it's quite another thing that in the midst of your trial, your family and your friends start looking down on you and start assessing that God must be against you if all these bad things are happening. So the master teacher is showing us that God's lesson plan, strong faith begins in trouble, but then it progresses to trust. And I want to spend some time on this. We can find the trust in verses three through six. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was calling to Yahweh with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke for Yahweh sustains me. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who are all who all around have set themselves against me. What does it mean to trust the Lord? I, I think in classic American evangelicalism, we tend to think of it as an emotion, as, as a feeling, and I really want to get away from that. There are wonderful feelings associated with trusting the Lord. There are wonderful emotions associated, but that is not the definition of trust. And so what I want to do is get this to something a little bit more tangible. I want to show you seven tangible statements of trusting the Lord. Some of these are things you believe. Some of these are things you say. Some of these are things you do. But tangible statements, this is what trusting the Lord is. And I've, I've just given them all a label. The first statement we'll call fortification. Fortification. David declares in the midst of his trouble, but you, O Yahweh, there's the switch. The trust is beginning now. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me. Now I want you to notice that there is a change that happens. In the first two verses, there's, 
my foes, my enemies, me, no salvation for him, me. But when trouble begins to give way to trust, the statements of faith in God are you statements. God is the central focus, not the man. You are a shield about me. You are my glory. You are the one who lifts my head. So this first statement concerns fortification, God being a shield to David. What is a shield? It's a defensive weapon. And what David is saying is that God alone is my shield. He is my protection. And this is a truly wonderful acknowledgement. And I think it's key that this is the first thing he says. That God is my only source of protection. There is no other source. There is no other source of spiritual help. What does it mean? Well, by acknowledging the fortification of God, that God alone is my shield, it means that the only painful things that happen to you are the things that God ordained, the things that God allowed. There is never a time in heaven when an arrow is going towards you and gets around the shield of God and God goes, ah, that one got by me. That never happens. I I read recently um, that... Uh, a man who said when he wakes up in the morning, he hears a voice and he doesn't know whether it's God or Satan. And so he has to keep praying until he finds out which one it is. You know what that is? That's an unbeliever. Our faith says God is sovereign and every arrow that strikes me is one that God allowed and ordained and it has a reason and it has a purpose and it will ultimately have a happy ending. We'll get to that. No arrow can get by that shield unless it's ordained by God. There's not one thing that will ever get to you that God did not allow and ordain. First statement of real trust, fortification. Here's a second statement, identification. Identification. David says to God, you are my glory. Now this sounds a little bit arrogant from our standpoint. Why would David proclaim that God is David's glory? Well, this is the king of Israel. David has been given the glory of God as the king of Israel. He is the representative of God. It's been, uh, there's been a kingdom bestowed on him. And David is proclaiming that if, if his glory is to remain intact, which David believes it will, it will only be due to the graciousness of God keeping it intact. You made me the king of Israel. You gave me this glory. If I keep it, it'll be because of you. He's trusting the Lord to restore his crumbling life and kingdom back to him and to keep the promises he's made previously. Now, I I labeled this statement identification because God has identified with David. God has declared that David belongs to him and to God's glory, God will restore David's glory. This is why the final result of our salvation in Christ is called in Romans 8.30, glorification. It means to elevate someone to a high place. That's what glorification means. Jesus declared in his great high priestly prayer in John 17, 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Who is that? That's us. That they may be one just as we are one. Hebrews 2, 10 says that God is bringing many sons to what? To glory. That there is a time where God will elevate us. Why is that? Because God has identified with you in Christ. He's identified with you and You're in Christ. Christ is in you. And what does that mean? It means that the days of your humiliation, your dishonor, your embarrassment are temporary. That glory is coming. Glory is on its way. The first statement, fortification. Second statement, identification. The third statement of growing stronger in the Lord, trusting Him, restoration. 
Restoration. David says that God is the one who lifts my head. That's just what it sounds like. David's head is bowed in shame, in degradation, in humiliation, and he trusts that God is going to deliver him from this. You know what's beautiful about this? Who ultimately caused this? Yes, God did, but David neglected his family. He neglected to properly parent his kids and yes his adult kids and to let Absalom know that hey there are punishments for sin and you need to endure them instead of instead of just forgiving him without actually dealing with the sin this is David's fault and yet God will still lift his head for David this is an expression of trust that God would restore the kingdom to him and so if you follow David's logic it's very simple God is the one who already has done so much for David, so God's not going to let him die humiliatingly in an insurrection. Particularly since David is a repentant man. He is, he is humble before the Lord when confronted. And I, I love this picture. I hope you can catch this picture. It is the picture of a believer who hangs his head in shame and in humiliation. And many of you have been through situations that are humiliating and and it makes you feel great shame. But God says, no, I will lift your head. I will restore you. That day will come. The first statement, fortification, then identification, restoration. Here's a fourth statement. And this is really the central focus of the psalm, supplication. Supplication. In verse 4, I was calling to Yahweh with my voice. Now, some have said that the phrase with my voice is metaphorical, that, you know, it's just he's, he's calling to God metaphorically. I, I think David took the time to be precise. He's saying that he's praying aloud. I would say he's probably praying loudly. He's talking to God. His prayers, in other words, aren't just vague heavenward thoughts. They're, uh, you've heard the, the saying that sometimes you do prayers and sometimes you do flares. And these aren't flares. These are real prayers. He is making specific requests. And and I want to encourage you with this. You don't make requests before God just to get answers. The very act of making requests to God is an act of faith. It says that you believe he can do something. You believe he will do something. Your prayers of supplication, of asking for the Lord to help you, those continue until you sense peace and calm and assurance. And listen... A prayer of supplication might need five minutes. It might need 15 minutes. It might need an hour. You might need to continue praying for days until you come to that point where you know the Lord has given you peace. That peace may evaporate in an hour. What do you do? You begin praying again. And that continues on. That's the whole point. Supplication. Here's a fifth statement. Glorification. Glorification. Verse four. He answered me from his holy mountain. This is Jerusalem where David had brought the Ark of the Covenant. Here's the irony. The city from which David had to run is the very place he says God will bring him an answer. The the God of Zion, the God of Jerusalem will be faithful to him. And it says he answered me. This is a verb form that keeps the action moving. This is something that has already happened. Now, before we see that thing that has already happened, the prayer that's already been answered, I want you to notice that David is giving God glory for this answer to prayer. And, and really, that's the ultimate purpose for all answered prayer, isn't it? What a wonderful way to pray, to say, here are my requests, and I believe you would receive great glory in answering these requests. 
If your motivation is to give God glory, not just to get your prayers answered, that gives you a great grounding in your faith and it puts your priorities in the right place. So what is this answer to prayer that David's already received? The first statement, fortification, identification, restoration, supplication, glorification. Here's a sixth statement of something tangible to do. Observation. Observation. At the end of verse 4, David generally gives God glory for answered prayer. That's a general glorification. But now David's observing specifically what the prayer and what the answer is. Verse 5, I lay down and slept. I awoke for Yahweh sustains me. Now I want to deconstruct this a little bit. What is the prayer that David prayed that was answered? Psalm 3 is a prayer in the morning which reflects a prayer he prayed the night before. Did you catch that? Psalm 3 is a prayer that he prayed in the morning that reflects upon a prayer prayed the night before. Last night he prayed, verse 4, I was calling to Yahweh with my voice. And now in verse 5, David has been able to sleep and he awoke. Why? Verse 5, I awoke for Yahweh sustains me. This could probably a little more accurately be translated, he sustained me. Past tense. I not only slept, I made it through the night. He's marveling that not only did he fall asleep, he actually woke up on this earth. Why is this so important? Why does this seemingly little tiny thing of a decent night's sleep mean so much to David? The reason it means a lot to him is because this is a small answer to prayer he sustained in the night, which David took as a signal that God was going to answer the larger prayer. That is to be defended against all the hordes that were coming against him. I absolutely can't emphasize enough how vital and important it is that this statement of observation is to strengthening your faith, rehearsing, reviewing every little answer to prayer, every little blessing every day. That tells you that the Lord is working. This is placing yourself in the same position as a terrified man in 2 Kings 6. You remember the story, the servant of Elisha the prophet was terrified of the army of the Arameans. They had come and surrounded the city of Dothan and the servant was panicked. He ran to Elisha. He said, alas, my master, what shall we do? And 2 Kings 6, 17 says, Elisha prayed and said, O Yahweh, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And Yahweh opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, what's the point? By observing, as David did, every little answer to prayer, every tiny grace of the Lord, every little blessing, hour by hour, you're opening your eyes to the armies of heaven that have been deployed on your behalf. It keeps you from hopelessness. It keeps you from terror and from fear because you see the Lord working. Now, that gets us to our seventh statement we'll call determination determination fortification identification restoration supplication glorification observation and determination and this is really the this is the crux of what trusting the lord is all about you've done these six things so far you have fortified yourself you've seen that god is my shield you have identified and seen that that god identifies with me he's not going to abandon me and so forth so you get to this this high point 
that I'll call determination, because now as he's exercising trust in the Lord, he makes an internal determination. It is, it is a, 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 the idea of determining that I will stand firm. And what does he say? He says that he will not be afraid of ten thousands of people. Now this is, this is terrific. Verse 1, my adversaries have become many. Many are rising against me. Many are saying to my soul, there's no salvation for him and God. Ten thousands of people. It's the same root word. I will not be afraid of the many. Verses 1 and 2, the many are causing panic. Now in verse 6, he determines he will not be afraid. Now why is he not afraid? He got the small signal that the Lord showed him that if David was able to have a good night's sleep. I mean, look, sometimes we have a, we have a bad night's sleep when we have a, you know, a test the next day or when we're afraid of something we don't want to do the next day. David had a good night's sleep when tens of thousands of soldiers were getting ready to come try to kill him and he fell asleep. I can't even fathom that. Based on that, and that is no, nothing short of miraculous, the adrenaline alone needed to go into individual combat doesn't allow you to sleep. God overrode that natural human response, and he slept. And so based on that, which he saw as miraculous, he determined that he would trust the Lord. Now, I want to be really clear about this. I don't want to send you off on a hunt for signs from the Lord well, you know, I, I drove through this uh, McDonald's and they had a coupon for 20% off. I take that as a sign for the Lord that I'm going to be fine today. That's a dangerous uh, effort there. It's subjective and it, in, it involves interpreting events wildly, always to your own favor, by the way. Um, nobody in the, in the signs and wonders movement and in the charismatic church, they never say, yeah, I, I had this sign from the Lord that the Lord is going to just nail me for the next five years and I'm going to be miserable for that time. Nobody ever says that. However, it is okay and it is appropriate, according to the example of David, to make observations of the Lord's blessings to you each and every day. To make observations of answers to prayer. I would defy any true believer in Christ to show me one day in their life that didn't have some signal, some blessing from the Lord, some little thing that they could be thankful for. What does the book of James say? That every good and perfect gift comes from where? The Father of lights comes from heaven. Every little thing. And what David did was to recognize the wonder of the fact that he had been protected in the night to the point of falling asleep. And listen, he wasn't in a fortress. He's probably sleeping in a tent or under a tree. It's not like he had a great defense around him. And so David's given greater confidence in the Lord's help in the bigger picture. Here's an important thing to consider, too. You know, all the time that David was praying and sleeping and literally taking time to write a prayer to the Lord, Psalm 3, his enemies were preparing for attack. They were preparing. It's very tempting to believe that my action is a substitute for prayer. It can't be. There's, it, when you say, well, I don't have time to pray, David did. There's enemies, you could probably have thrown a rock and hit some of them. They were that close. They, they didn't generally fight at night. They waited for morning. I don't know what that was like an agreement in the ancient Near East or something, but that's what they did. David was praying when he could have been meeting with all of his generals and drawing up plans and strategies. Instead, he prayed. 
That is a tremendous act of faith. I can't emphasize this enough. Trusting in the Lord is not an emotion you feel. It is not a feeling. It may be followed by feelings, but trusting in the Lord is demonstrated in tangible beliefs, tangible actions by faith. That's what trust is. And I have to tell you, if you refuse to exercise those seven expressions, those seven ways of truly trusting the Lord, the master teacher simply says, it's time to go back to the first part of our lesson that God brings trouble. And he'll simply say, let's try this again. I've been in this for four and a half years. You're right, and you didn't trust me, so let's just do something worse, and maybe you'll trust me now. That's been my experience, at least, that the Lord tends to repeat trials that I didn't do well. So God's lesson plan of strong faith begins in trouble. It progresses to trust. This is our whole hope here. It concludes in triumph. It concludes in triumph. Verses 7 and 8. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be upon your people. David makes the request, arise, save me. There's a sense of confidence. Why? Because, verse 7, God's actions in the past. Now, we want to be theologically accurate and bring the rest of Scripture to bear as well. You have to temper this triumph with the knowledge of a sovereign God. Charismatic prosperity theology says that I get to define triumph. I get to define victory. A belief in the sovereignty of God says that God defines triumph. God defines what victory is. And I want you to remember two things about David's particular situation. First of all, David has something we don't have. He has the Davidic covenant in which God promised a faithful and protected reign on the throne of Israel. So that's something he has. But the second thing I want you to remember, we confine our definition of enemies to spiritual enemies. You can't just define anything you don't like in your life as an enemy. You know, this, this uh, highway patrolman here pulled me over and I, I wasn't speeding. Yeah, right. All right. We get that. He's not your enemy. In fact, God says he's a minister. Anything you don't like. Boy, I have indigestion. I don't like that. That's my spiritual enemy. I'm going to pray over that. That gets you going down a crazy, crazy route. But David goes with us and walks with us in saying against spiritual enemies, God will always have the eventual victory. And you think about this. I've tried to think this through and wonder what this would be like. How many of the martyrs died in apparent immediate defeat and yet with confidence that their spiritual enemies would ultimately be defeated by God? I mean, there really isn't a bigger defeat as a Christian, to be led to a stake to about to be burned to death. In 1555, you're familiar with the story, two pastors named Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were burned at the stake by Bloody Mary, the Catholic Queen of England. And at that moment, it seemed that all was lost. But Latimer is famous for his last words that he declared, we shall this day light such a candle. In other words, being burned at the stake But God's grace in England, as I trust, will never be put out. And the martyrdom of Latimer and Ridley lit a flame in England and the gospel spread like wildfire, no pun intended. That's what Latimer said. The gospel would spread like the same fire that's going to kill us. David here expects a great deliverance. That's certainly how you ought to pray. There are perfect tense verbs in Hebrew here. 
You have struck all my enemies. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. This is what's called a prophetic perfect. That because you've done this in the past, you will do it again in the future. David has experienced victory by the Lord's hands many times, going all the way back to the wild animals of his youth when he defended the sheep. And probably the best example of all, his defeat of Goliath. And so David's danger here, as he says, has struck all my enemies, you've shattered the teeth. This isn't theoretical, this isn't emotional, this isn't us praying, Lord, I'm sad. That's not that. This is people who literally wanted to put implements of war into his body and kill him. This is a, a graphic picture of battle that's literally going to happen maybe minutes after he finishes penning this psalm. What a tremendous determination that he has. And by the way, we see the completion of a theme here. I love how many psalms have a sub-theme that kind of go underneath. The theme of salvation. And there's a sequence. The sequence around the theme of salvation. Verse 2, the mocking of David. There's no salvation for him and God. Verse 7, save me, O my God. Same root word. And verse 8, salvation belongs to Yahweh. He goes from me all the way to God. He expects a triumph, but the battle hasn't happened yet. And the point I'm making here, we cannot define victory. God must define it. You can't say, God, here's my definition of victory. Here's what you're going to do. He must define it. And the reason I want to make this clear is that the triumph that David is is experiencing here, the battle hasn't happened yet. What's the real triumph? And don't miss this. If you miss this, you miss the whole point of Psalm 3. The triumph that David experiences is internal. It's the triumph of the heart. It's a series of declarations about what God has done. It's not necessarily that God is certain of, or that David is certain of the outcome. What he is certain of, salvation belongs to God. If I'm going to be saved out of this situation, it will be all God. He's certain of coming victory. He's certain of that triumph. But the form of that victory, the substance of that victory is not known to him, nor is it known to us. David's victory will be certain in that he will take his throne back. But it has a tragedy with it. The death of Absalom. And it tore David to shreds. When he learned of Absalom's death, 2 Samuel 18, 33, the king trembled and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. David and you and I must submit to God's definition of victory. God's definition of triumph. He gets to have his way. I want to just take another moment and kind of take us beyond Psalm 3. Because in verses 7 and 8, there's a connection that's unique to David. And that is that the success of the king and the salvation of God's people are connected. Did you notice at the very end of the psalm, salvation belongs to Yahweh and, I'm adding the word and, your blessing be upon your people. There's a connection between the king and the salvation of the people. That if the kingdom is taken from David, God's people are going to suffer horribly. So if God is going to save his people, God must preserve the king. Now, I I say that to, to bring you forward. If you had the ability to travel back in time, 
But you also knew the full implications of the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ, of the salvation implications, of justification, being raised with him, that your own future resurrection is impossible without the resurrection of Christ. And yet you're limited in time and space and you've gone back in time and you witness the death of Christ and you're waiting by the tomb knowing everything that you know about what is riding on the resurrection of Christ, you would bite your fingernails off to the core. Because of everything that's riding on this. Because if God is going to save his people, he must save the king. And just like David was driven from Jerusalem by evil men and returned in triumph, so also Christ, who was taken outside of Jerusalem and murdered, will return in triumph as well. So David points us really, as all the Davidic Psalms, to the greater David, to the Messiah who will be triumphant. But for you and I, we still wait for that day. And I'd like to just take our last moment here to synthesize Psalm 3 into a short prayer. And that's the prayer I'm going to pray to close our time together. So let's pray together. Our Father, be our help and shield. Give us restful sleep as we entrust ourselves to your care. Remove our fears. Give us peace and confidence. Thank you for saving us in Christ because salvation belongs to God and to God alone. And we pray in our Savior's name. Amen.